Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. I'm Bill Goodman. Everyone remembers the devastating flooding that affected uh, eastern Kentucky last summer uh, in July of uh, 2022 or thereabouts. Uh, it uh, We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of that, and I think for the people who've lived through it and are still living with it, it uh, maybe is not an anniversary that they want to celebrate, but certainly something that not many people will forget or have forgotten. And today I thought it would be a good idea to uh, get a an update, uh, uh, a new perspective from a couple of uh, people who have uh, lived it and uh, one who's done extensive work and reporting on it and one who um, is a, a native of uh, that area and uh, has also done some documentary work on uh, the floods of of Eastern Kentucky, of Appalachia. Uh, my guests are Tom Martin, who is uh, familiar to many, many of you as the host of our radio partner at uh, Kentucky Humanities, WEKU. Uh, he is the host of Eastern Standard, uh, the radio magazine that he began uh, a few years ago, uh, a magazine where he interviews and tells stories about interesting people and places and things happening in the, the Commonwealth of Kentucky and, and elsewhere. Uh, you also probably uh, don't always hear Tom's uh, bio and background, but I'm very uh, proud and pleased to, uh, to tell you that he's a, a Moorhead, Kentucky native. And uh, as far as his background, uh, an extensive journalistic uh, journalism background as an anchor um, in uh, radio in, in Pittsburgh, um, a Peabody Award winning anchor and documentarian at AP Radio Network News in Washington, as well as uh, a news anchor for RKO Radio Network, uh, the ABC Network News and WABC News in New York. And uh, for some of us, um, and I certainly count myself as as one of those uh, who remembers Paul Harvey well, he was a substitute commentator for Paul Harvey. Um, good day. Um, and uh, did that for a number of years. So um, he also hosted some programs around Lexington and uh, began a, a station over in Georgetown. He was involved with uh, a Business Lexington uh, magazine as the founding editor-in-chief and and now has uh, found a, a terrific home and uh, does wonderful work for Eastern Standard and all of WEKU over in Richmond. And joining Tom for the discussion today will be uh, Dee Davis, the president of the Center for Rural Strategies. Dee uh, has been uh, involved in um, uh, Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky for uh, many, many years. Um, he helped design and lead national public information campaigns and on topics as diverse as commercial television programming and federal banking policy. Um, he began his media career in 1973 as a, a trainee at Apple Shop, uh, and uh, we all know that uh, he's from Whitesburg and, and is proud of that too, and has lived there uh, quite a long time. And uh, he was uh, their executive producer, uh, has done work all over uh, Eastern Kentucky. And now as a, um, a uh, president of the Center for uh, Rural Strategies, uh, their mission statement on their homepage uh, on the website uh, states that uh, the uh, rural strategies seek to improve economic and social conditions for com uh, for communities in the countryside and around the world through the creative and innovative use of media and communications. Uh, they strive to create better opportunities for small towns and rural communities by building coalitions, developing partnerships, leading public information campaigns, and 
advancing strategies that strengthen connections between rural and urban places. And it's uh, an honor to have both um, men with us. And our topic uh, could be many, many things concerning Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky because of their their knowledge and their their breadth of uh, of wisdom about what goes on in Appalachia. But we're going to talk about uh, the flooding that occurred, uh, uh, what it's like today, and what it might be like tomorrow. So let's begin with with Tom, who uh, not only reported uh, as it uh, was unfolding, but uh, then set aside um, uh, some valuable time and and resources to devote uh, several hours of radio programming, uh, research and investigative work and in putting together a series uh, looking at the flooding. And um, I would like for Tom to begin by just talking about RISE and um, what you learned from putting that radio documentary together. Well, uh, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate that introduction. And uh, I, I first have to say that uh, RISE owes a tremendous debt of gratitude to the Daily Yonder and to Dee and to everybody at the Daily Yonder who pitched in from day one. And uh, they were, you know, they were on the ground out doing interviews with people who survived the flood and, and many others. And uh, their input figured into the actually six hours, the six hours of uh, the RISE series that focused on the flood. Uh, there's a seventh that focuses on the proposed federal prison in Letcher County, but that's another story. Um, when it became clear what had happened in uh, primarily in, in those four hardest hit counties, uh, Breathitt, uh, uh, Perry, Knott, and Letcher, the extent of it, the extraordinary extent of that storm, um, we knew that, that uh, it, this was not something that was going to just be a passing event. Uh, and it turns out that turns out to be true because issues continue to emanate from that flood today. And of course, everybody is concerned about the next one that might come and whether or not uh, the region is properly prepared. For that. Uh, I think in many ways it is, having been through this experience, lots of lessons learned and lots of cues taken. Um, uh, whether or not uh, the region is better prepared to withstand this kind of catastrophic weather event in the future, and we're told to expect those because of the acceleration of extreme weather due to climate change. Um, whether or not uh, the region will be adequately prepared is um, the $64 million question. Um, one of the many things that we learned in uh, this process was how impossible it is to plan under these conditions. Uh, we talked to two different sets of experts at the Army Corps of Engineers just to find out what it's like to be an engineer who's uh, task is to plan infrastructure and to mitigate against this kind of flash flooding. And it's a nightmare for them, frankly. Uh, they, they don't really know what to anticipate. The most innovative thing we heard come out of that was the idea that any uh, hard infrastructure that is created in the future to divert floodwaters or that kind of thing, should be designed in a way that it can be expanded, can be built upon in case it's, that's needed to give it a little bit more flexibility because you don't think of flexibility with infrastructure all that often. Of course, the uh, item number one for everybody going through this uh, was, and, and this is of course item one was the loss of life. 44 lives lost, it turns out uh, in the end. And, uh, and again, you know, I'll defer to to D on more of that because he's there. He he and Mimi live in Whitesburg, which was hard hit. Uh, besides the loss of life, the loss of homes has been just devastating, and there has been an uh, all courts press on to uh, house people 
and in the process to figure out ways to do that out of harm's way. Again, the conditions make that very difficult. Why do people live in floodplains? Well, that was a, 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 an appropriate question, but there are reasons. Because one of them being that those ridgetops are not flat where they haven't been flattened, and it's very difficult to develop them. It's very difficult to run a road up the side of a steep mountainside um, and keep it safe. Uh, but beyond that, finding the land has been difficult. Uh, we do know that it was recently announced that uh, one neighborhood will be built by the Knott County Sportsplex. Um, another uh, on the Letcher uh, Perry County line, I believe that is, if I'm not wrong about that, uh, D. Uh, so there, there is some activity in that area, but when we talk to property owners in the region, uh, we soon realize that a lot of the properties that are owned by former coal companies, now property companies, is largely inaccessible and does not have infrastructure running to it, sewer, electric, and so forth. So those are cost and logistics considerations to, uh, uh, to keep in mind when we're thinking about this relocation. Um, and then finally, do people want to be relocated? Um, many are very aware of what happened in the aftermath of Buffalo Creek in West Virginia, where communities were broken up and kind of mashed together in these camps. And uh, from a social aspect, it became a very difficult, a very difficult outcome there. Um, I would say that, you know, having done this work for um, to result in six hours of radio documentary, uh, there's a, there's so much to talk about and I could go on and on and I don't want to do that. I do want to do one thing though. I want to definitely uh, credit the uh, RISE team who made this happen. Our uh, senior producers, Jean Marie Hibbard, uh, special projects reporter, Chris Begley, uh, Corinne Boyer was also a reporter on this project and Crystal Jones, who is now um, with us on our team as a reporter. Uh, and all of those folks and the, the folks at uh, the Daily Yonder and many others simply stepped up. They were not compensated. This was all volunteer work. And I think that is flat out remarkable in this day and age. So I, I wanted to make sure that they were credited. D, you, um, of course, uh, have been in uh, Appalachia all your life and uh, you grabbed your, your camera uh, just like you had um, so many other times uh, to, to film the sights and sounds of, of what happens in Eastern Kentucky, whether it uh, is music or and laughter or whether it's tragedy uh, through other uh, ways, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, folk art or whatever. This uh, was none of the above. Um, and uh, if you would take us back to, if, for example, you're describing this to someone who may have moved into Kentucky, or you're talking to a a visitor or a tourist uh, who did not hear of or didn't know uh, too much about what happened in those four counties. Uh, give us a, a, an idea, paint us a picture of, uh, of why this wasn't just another rainstorm and a, and a creek that happened to get over its banks. Thanks, Bill. And, and uh, it's, it's great to uh, be on with Tom. Um, I was a kid in 57, I was in kindergarten when the 57 flood hit. I lived, we were living in Hazard and, and we lost everything. You know, I, um, um, I grew up under National Guard blankets that were handed out and, and, you know, we lost, we lost everything and we had to go up to my grandmother's. Uh, I, I remember watching her float by on East Main Street in a canoe with my Uncle Tom paddling and then got to her house and then the flood got in there and got over everything. And, and so, 
um, it's indelible in a way. You, you know, all the the wedding albums of my parents were caked in flood mud, and every time you would get to look at them, you would smell that smell again. And so, uh, when this happened, I was um, here in town. We live on a hill, and my grandkids were visiting twin three-year-olds and a six-year-old and, and we you know you look out in the, the river that you could pretty much jump across at least if you found a rock you could get across in two hops was now 300 yards wide and the downtown was inundated and and um every appliance is shooting down over the bridge and um, all of a sudden, it's just, it's unworldly. And we, and we, we had the situation where our offices were spared by the, like the width of one brick. And so um, after it was over, we just thought, well, maybe we should go out and get some stories and, and begin to tell this because, I mean, what, what Tom and, and the EKU team has done so well uh, with RISE is this, they got the policy, they got, they really did excellent journalism and, and getting to hear um, uh, their um, special correspondent, uh, Chris Begley, I used to, uh, sit at his grandparents' uh, little store in Blackie, and, and I don't know how many hours uh, I, I got to sit with Joe and Gaynell Begley and listen to the history of this region and, and what it meant to grow up here and uh, um, great stories of intrigue um, from Maytown to Letcher County. And, and so it, it was... Uh, it's been wonderful to have that solid journalism and commentary from Eastern, but that's not what we wanted to do. Uh, we wanted to really shoot for, I, I guess in some ways, the more existential, the biblical stories of, you know, what people are saying. I mean, they, they looked out and it's kind of like, um, Rock of Ages, Jacob's Ladder hanging down. People were, they were seeing everything they own flash in front of them, you know, and they were seeing neighbors in dire straits. And all of a sudden you had, well, you had what, something like over a thousand people rescued by neighbors, 640 people rescued by helicopters. You had um, this, amazing moment where so many people, ordinary people that you wouldn't really think about twice when you see them walking down the street were acting with great heroism. And then when the, the peril of the flood had gone away, the just the overwhelming stench and debris and um, kind of discombobulating um, uh, um, situation could overwhelm anything except people just stepped up, you know, they got a shovel, they, they went into people's homes they'd never seen before and they started mucking them out. And, um, and so, so we wanted to get those stories, the stories of, of courage and heroism and stories of sacrifice and stories of resilience and, and tell those stories. And so in a way, it's kind of, I think of what the stuff we were doing is complementary to the work at RISE and EKU and that, that we were more documentarians in this respect of, of getting stories that have, um, I guess, a shelf life, right? That, that we'll try to talk about um, 
the characters and the whys of living in a, a hard hit place. D, uh, you spoke of the peril of uh, what the flood did. How long did it take for the the peril of the rise of the waters to to dissipate, um, and, and for the recovery for the uh, the mucking of the mud uh, begin, and, and how long did that last? So, I mean, there's still houses that are just no people just don't show up. You know, there's some, they're not as many, of course, but there's some houses where people have just uh, abandoned. Abandon. Right. But for the most part, um, uh, people jumped on it quickly, as uh, quickly as they could. They, they brought, there were a lot of crews that came in. There were a lot of volunteers who came in from, you know, the United Cajun Navy and there's church groups and um, uh, people who've gone through floods like this before and just people who have big hearts and particularly, you know, in Appalachia, there's as many people who have had to leave here because of the economy or because of opportunity. There's, there are more of them than live here now. And so there was this um, gigantic effort by people who had moved away to get supplies in, to send, you know, to send in grills for people who had lost electricity, to, to send in water, food, um, and and, um, and the this is stuff that goes under the radar, but just um, UPS trucks showing up just to take care of the gifts for one community or another. And these would be small communities, not big towns. And, and so there was a, a lot of people uh, stepped up. The, you, the, the state parks were turned into refuges. The uh, trailer parks, you know, uh, began to get established as for the victims. And so, and some of that's still uh, prominent. Some, you know, people want to get back to their homes. And, um, and because so many uh, people who had left less wherewithal lived in the floodplain, you, you know, um, you saw a lot of poor people who were devastated who didn't have the extra resources just to um, begin to um, contract to uh, repair and recover. And so so this is this is not a six months or a one year project. And I think a lot of people just, you know, honoring this right at first and muscle memory and you're just going to go to work. But you can't do everything with this self-discipline and muscle memory. You need some policy. And that's where uh, I so appreciated some of the work that um, um, Tom and, and the RISE team did to really look at what needed to happen and how you prepare for it. I, I think uh, we're going to keep gathering stories. Uh, about a week ago, we were at the fire department in Roussel in Breathitt County. Yesterday we were shooting at Buckhorn in Perry County. We're, there's so many more stories to get. It's just, mm -hmm. you, you know, we just scratched the surface in our documentary yet. We got a lot of stories and we were just in Letcher and Knott County. So, yeah. um, so we think it's important to lift these stories up because uh, attention spans are fleeting <laughs> and, you know, uh, for, for the nation, it may be that this was an important story until the hurricane hit Florida and everybody uh, had this zip off. But, you know, for us, um, it'll be important for a long time. And, and we feel like we've got to, give people here an opportunity to assay themselves. 
Tom, um, you interviewed uh, so many experts. I, as just a listener, I learned so much about uh, the environment and about a, a floodplain and about insurance and about FEMA. And I could go on and on with you were so um, inclusive with uh, so many aspects of the story. What at the uh, eight months, uh, seven, eight months after uh, the catastrophe, what stands out to you? Uh, what what questions do you still have that haunt you? FEMA comes to mind, first of all, uh, and it's not necessarily the uh, failing of the people of FEMA, it's the structure of FEMA. It hasn't evolved with conditions. Uh, you know, this has been one rough year this past year uh, for nationwide. There have been so many, so much, there has been so much demand on FEMA from coast to coast that it's no wonder they're absolutely stretched thin. But also, there's kind of a there's a, a misunderstanding about what they do. They they don't come in and make communities whole again. They come in and get you out of you know initial trouble, um, and that's really about it. And there also are important and worrisome discrepancies in who gets what and how much. You might have one family uh, at one spot on the road uh, with significant damage to their home and they receive a check for, you know, $1,000 maybe. Down the road, maybe five miles, equivalent damage, and that homeowner received a check for twelve dollars or $20,000. Um, it kind of depended on who did the inspection and uh, uh, kind of floating criteria. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure right now to restructure, to, to revisit FEMA, restructure it, and bring it up to date with the conditions that we're dealing with today with these extreme weather events that we keep having. Um, I think what, uh, what Dee has done, what he's doing is uh, essential to this, and it's got to keep going, as he suggests, because it, it absolutely puts a human face and human experience on an event like this. I mean, we can talk about how creeks rose, you know, normally six inches deep rose to 30 feet overnight. And, you know, the force that that implies, uh, we can talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, the Corps of Engineers or the state emergency management's performance, which was uh, really good, I thought. Uh, but in the end, it's what people experience and how they relate it that we tend to remember. And it tends to be the most affecting, too, in terms of, of, uh, of policymaking and inspiring policy. But I would say um, the, the reason you ask, you know, what, what haunts the extraordinary stress that the confusion around FEMA placed on people who were already stretched to the limits in terms of their, their capacity to deal with what had happened to them seemed often seemed unnecessary. Uh, and, and I guess that's pointing a finger. I, I don't really mean to do that, but uh, I know that there's a great deal of interest in revisiting FEMA uh, for modern times. If I could say something too on that. It's like after Katrina and Rita, you know, most of our work is national and, and not much of it is, is focused here in Eastern Kentucky where we're based. But uh, after Katrina and Rita, we got asked to come down and document the rebuilding efforts. And we spent five years in the Gulf of Mississippi and in Louisiana. And so there was a place after Katrina where they had a $66 billion federal set aside. You had Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush had raised a huge endowment to take care of the rebuilding efforts. And, and there, people were still complaining about FEMA because it, it is, you know, 
Congress in some ways has put a stranglehold on it. They don't want it to, they, they, they've always underfunded it. They never wanted it to be a, a, a flood insurance program or a, a hurricane insurance program. They, they, they've just done it as a basic um, uh, emergency plan. And then uh, if you don't get it the first time, you have to keep appealing. It, it's it's ungainly, but it's also um, I, I think it, I think the problems with FEMA are not a bug; they're a feature that it was really built to not quite get the job done, and and it's hard to um, in this time when we have so much kind of weather catastrophe on the horizon. It's very hard to think about funding it in a way that could take care of um, the problems that we're fixing to have. So, so in a way, um, I don't mean it as a full-throated defense of bad policy. I just, I just mean that um, People are often hopeful that the federal government will will step in, but the tools have been uh, throttled so that they can't uh, really do what's needed to be done. And certainly we're feeling that in the sense that we've lost people, we've lost infrastructure, we've lost all kinds of housing. And... Uh, it's a slow process trying to find the resources that we need. I'm talking uh, to Tom Martin, who is the host and uh, producer of Rise, a radio documentary from WEKU in uh, Richmond, our uh, wonderful public radio uh, station that serves uh, central and eastern Kentucky. Uh, and uh, Dee Davis, who is the president of the Center for Rural Strategies about the uh, flooding that occurred almost a year ago in uh, four counties in eastern Kentucky that uh, so many things have happened in that time period uh, since we uh, first uh, learned of the flooding and and the um, the aftermath right after the flooding that many people have forgotten uh, about the folks in uh, Appalachia. And we're uh, revisiting that and we'll have some more questions uh, right after we hear from our wonderful underwriter, Spalding University's Graduate School of Writing. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. Tom, we um, have learned again so much uh, from from you, from uh, Dee's uh, storytelling, uh, from the documentary, and the other work that he's uh, is doing. Um, there are so many questions that are still to be uh, asked and and answered. Um, but. The concern is, as you mentioned, I think at the very beginning of our conversation, is what happens next. I mean, we all know that uh, there's a possibility of um, of another storm and 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 of other flooding. Um, I think I learned uh, a little bit about uh, water in in eastern Kentucky, um, and and very little did I learn. But that's when. They rerouted the river in in um, in Pikeville and and were successful in doing that. And that's just one example. I mean, there are many examples. I think you and I talked at one time about about Troublesome Creek and whether or not that could uh, occur in in uh, in Hindman and uh, why not and that sort of thing. We um, as rank amateurs when it comes to uh, being 
engineers. Uh, we didn't know what we were talking about, uh, <laughs> but being familiar with Heinemann, uh, of course. Uh, so what what happens? Uh, has anything from an infrastructure uh, standpoint, uh, from people not rebuilding where they lived, uh, from um, the housing that you spoke of earlier that might be out of a floodplain, what what are the concrete positive steps that you can point to? Well, I think it a lot of what you just cited uh, kind of begins with where are the floodplains, and uh, those are updated roughly every five years. And Kerry Johnson in the State Division of Water is working directly with FEMA to redraw floodplains in, in these counties. And uh, he readily admitted that it is an enormous challenge because uh, floodplain mapping is, it's, ded it's deductive. It's, um, it looks to the past. It can't, it's not predictive. It can't predict the future. So in other words, all they have to go on is the data that exists from what happened. Well, what happened last July 28th, 27th and 28th was like nothing that had ever happened before. And there's a good reason to expect that that level of weather event will happen again in some shape or form. So while the planning for these floodplains is underway and it has enormous implications uh, for uh, property values, for insurance coverage, et cetera, uh, I, uh, we, we made, kind of made a, uh, a date with the Division of Water to get back to them this summer to find out where they are on that, find out what kind of obstacles they've run into in making those plans. Because uh, those are pretty critical. Those are pretty uh, important to understanding where to build things, uh, where not to build things, where people should be, should not be. Um, and all of that's easier said than done, too, because people, you know, have a deep, deeply held feeling about place, um, in particular in uh, Appalachian, Kentucky. And just think about it. Your home is your home. And if you've lived in it all your life, perhaps you were born there and you're your ancestors lived in that same place in those same rooms. And to have that just washed away overnight is absolutely heartbreaking, devastating. And I think that in, uh, in today's world, we, we kind of, uh, we don't get to that emotion enough. And what that emotion generates is empathy and, uh, compassion and understanding for uh, these, you know, these terrible events that happen to other people that, you know, by the grace of God could happen to us. So um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah. But... Dee, uh, tell me about uh, Apple Shop and um, what the condition is uh, today now. I, I don't mean to in any way uh, leave out the rest of of your wonderful hometown of Whitesburg. I was just happened to be there on a, on a trip uh, to Heinemann just a few weeks before the flood uh, went over to uh, talk to the folks at Apple shop about carrying our uh, think history uh, blurbs. And uh, they're doing that. Uh, although I think they're doing it from a, a trailer uh, somewhere uh, right now. I, and then again, uh, a lot of the focus was was on Apple Shop in Whitesburg. Although we know that that the downtown uh, area was uh, wiped out, and so many houses and and loss and and retail and all of that. But uh, there there were a lot of pictures and stories about uh, the the archives at Apple Shop. Uh, for one thing, shocking that we reported to the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, <laughs> they they wanted to know a figure um, uh, of of the loss, and when we we heard a million dollars, they were thinking that was that was inflated, or for the whole region, you know, it was for one section of uh, the the building of uh, at Apple Shop. Uh, it, it's incredible what happened there. So, what what is the status of uh, of the building? So, I I worked at Apple Shop until. 
2001. So when we started Rural Strategies, but um, that archive of film, video, audio, and um, written text, photography um, is one of the most extensive, if not the most extensive um, kind of history, uh, certainly uh, uh, audiovisual history of the Appalachian region. And um, a lot of scholars used it and it, it was used um, by different producers, but it was in many ways just there as a living archive as a way to preserve the the history of people and to kind of look at aspiration and endeavor enterprise over a hundred years really and it, the stories that were told by um coal miners and quilters were important connectors to the rest of the world. So it's an important archive. And so it was devastated. They moved, you know, film to one lab and video to another lab and audio. And they, you know, some, some stuff you put, some stuff you freeze and some stuff you uh, brush off. And, and I know that they've had some success now, um, uh, from a repository, uh, uh, Iron Mountain, which I think is going to be able to house much of the collection, but there's so much cleanup still to do. And, um, uh, it's really a situation of, uh, not appreciating what you have till it's gone. I mean, in this situation, it's important to, to move, to um, get the cleanup done and uh, to get it in a safe spot. There's, the nation's archivists have been really wonderful stepping up and coming in, but there's a bill to be paid. And so I think that there's gonna be a pretty big fundraising effort. Uh, Caroline Rubens, who is the archivist there is a very thoughtful and um, strategic uh, person and she's got a great team working with her but man it's a big job yeah are there people uh, working in the building now no the building, the building is, is still closed right i mean that that's right the yeah. it's, wow it's cleaned out it's mucked out but they rented some other spaces in town yeah wow um tom um of all the stories that you heard and <laughs> Uh, I think everyone realizes too that in um, radio or uh, television production, D would uh, agree here that uh, there's a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor, um, and uh, you you probably have some tales of uh, of something that didn't make the air. Uh, tell us one, um, and I can think of a couple, but I want you to tell us uh, of a couple of really good positive stories of, of some things that happened and or one that you heard, whether you reported on it or not. I mean, some would bring your, bring you to tears um, and did, uh, I'm sure. Uh, there are two that stand out in, in my mind, in our minds. We were talking about this the other day, our, our uh, team was. Uh, one of them for me was a story that was provided to us by uh, Anya Slepian at uh, the Daily Yonder. Uh, she talked with a gentleman by the name of John North who uh, lived in a trailer and alone and described his experience as the water was coming at him from both north and south. And he, uh, it was rising fast and he couldn't swim. And so he thought, you know, this is it. And he talked about thinking about, I'm, I'm about to die. And uh, that's about as affecting as it gets, you would think. But then uh, Chris Begley, sat down with Jimmy Owsley from the Knott County Recovery Group. He's also with the Mountain Association and heard his story about discovering a week after the flood, um, everybody was asking about this elderly woman 
has anybody checked on her? And everybody, it was one of those cases where everybody assumed somebody else had and nobody had. And so they went out to find her and did find her in her home. She was uh, disabled. She had spent the week trying to muck out her place by herself. In the meantime, a diesel fuel tank had dislodged upriver and that flood had carried that thing right down to her home and it burst into her home and burst open and covered the floors with diesel fuel. So she her feet were burned. By the time that Jimmy got to her uh, and carried her out of there, and he was in tears as he told this story, uh, that's just one. There are so many stories like that uh, that are really affecting and you know, uh, one of the things that we discovered that, that I had kind of lost sight of because I hadn't done a documentary in many years is it really is a process of peeling away the layers of the onion. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. And so what one of the effects of that was we added an episode focused only on mental health and the mental health impacts of going through this kind of catastrophe and loss and uh, how that combines with a pretty general character uh, in the mountains of doing it yourself, taking care of yourself, not burdening other people with your, your problems. Uh, there's a bit of uh, stigma about even admitting to mental health issues. Uh, but then it's also exacerbated by the lack of access. Uh, that's improving a little bit, but is still pretty uh, prominent. And so those there are implications out of that they're going to linger on for many years. Uh, and in particular, the concerns are, are for you know young people and, and how it's affected them. Having come right out of the pandemic, this happened right on top of that. We know how devastating that was. So uh, that's one of those lingering concerns that's still out there that we will be uh, paying attention to. Uh I would say too, um, and um, we we had a great team of of uh, producers, uh, Joel Cohen and Mimi Pickering and Marty Newell and Teresa Collins. We had a a, a veteran crew uh, working on this stuff, and you, you get these stories, and you just don't want to harm them. You know, you just want people to tell. Them. But but we were in one. Um, uh, one kind of cabin up in Millstone where it'd be mucked out. A woman uh, was in her late 70s on a walker and the river came up and she had to hold on to the awning out front for five hours waiting for somebody to get to her. And, and, and you know, uh, my offices are in Whitesburg City Hall next door to the fire department. Uh, this guy I knew, I saw him around all the time. I didn't think much of him. He was a, a volunteer fireman, an EMT in, in town. Um, turns out he, he got over into the upper bottom of section of town where was low line, a lot of homes were destroyed. And um, he he went into a house a woman has sitting on the couch, an older woman, the water's up to her chest. So he didn't know what to do. He goes out, gets a kayak and a life jacket um, and goes back into the house. And now it's up to her neck or chin. And, and he lifts her up and puts her in the kayak. He says he had to rely on adrenaline, you know, just everything he could do. And he, he can't swim. He, but still, he pulls her out, and he goes around. He ends up saving fourteen people, fourteen people from the flood. And you know, just what heroes we live around, you know. But you would never know until the tips were down and uh, there was some need. And so, in that way, I've been, I've been really inspired to be in it, in this community. Sometimes, you know you worry about the problems or you worry about uh, what your daily routine is. And uh, you don't take the time to just stop and appreciate 
um, the community uh, and the capacity to really do something extraordinary. Dee and Tom, I got just a couple of uh, uh, comments, last questions. Uh, Dee, first of all, I've always encouraged people to visit um, all of Kentucky, uh, uh, but uh, certainly uh, Appalachia. And uh, would I haven't done that uh, lately. Uh, I, 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 is Whitesburg ready to accept uh, tourism and 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 people visiting and hear some music and or is it just not quite ready yet are the restaurants open i think there's good uh, the sea time festival is gonna uh, at some mid-june it's gonna happen i think the Callan creek um you know music camps are gonna happen i uh the the uh, Airbnbs that were taking care of people who were displaced are now open again so it's um it's been okay. a little deliberate, but it's, um, um, yeah, I think that uh, it, we're all welcoming uh, folks coming by. It might be different, a little bit different. Seed time, we're, we're a little bit of uh, Kentucky Humanities is a part of that. So uh, I, I certainly plan to, to I, hope, I hope I can get down there. And uh, where is your documentary? Uh, where can people see the, the finished product? I know you have a lot more. Um, not on the cutting room floor, yeah. but in the editing suite, I guess. Right. But uh, and we we've distributed a lot of them through through the Daily Honor. Um, but what I was, but if you go to YouTube uh, and just look for East Kentucky Flood, I think um, it showed on the local Hazard CBS affiliate KT still streaming it. I think, but it's uh, on YouTube. I think we've had about eighty eight thousand views, so it's. Mm -hmm. uh, it's there, East Kentucky flood. Good. And Tom, uh, your uh, documentary series is available, uh, but what's the easiest way for them to get to um, to rise? Easiest way would be Spotify or Apple Music. Uh, it's uh, on both of those platforms as a podcast. Uh, the whole series is. Um, or you can just go to weku-rise.org, and it's all there. And well, I to make a quick shout out and thanks to the Mountain Eagle and Sam Adams, who also pitched in on, on our work, too. Sure. Well, it um, takes a lot of people to work on these um, um, ventures. And uh, to Dee Davis and Tom Martin, uh, thanks to you both uh, for the update. Uh, as we all know, uh, this is not over and won't be. And you've uh, expressed that and. We realize that there's a, a lot to do, and um, but slowly but surely, uh, it'll um, it'll get done. And um, I want to thank you for the time that you've given us and and our listeners uh, this morning. And uh, we'll maybe come back at at some other day and have a celebration that it's um, that it's all fixed up and and ready to have visitors. That'd be great. So, thank you both. Thank you. So long, thanks. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.